I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, you're on Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Here's a little bonus track we're dropping into the feed. It's a book event, kind of an online book party that Medium threw me on the launch of Survival of the Richest Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, which began as an article on Medium about my strange experience consulting to a group of billionaire preppers. As a way of celebrating the book, as well as what can happen when you post a story on Medium, their director of creative growth, the wonderful Adrian Samuels Gibbs, hosted a Twitter Spaces conversation with me about the book, its themes, and the journey from idea to article to book to, yes, movie. I hope you like it. Thanks for joining us for this very special medium in conversation with Douglas Wishkoff. I am Adrian Gibbs, and I am the director of creative growth here at Medium, and we're so glad to see you. We're going to um, wait a little bit. Oh, there's a lot of you here. I said we're going to wait a little bit for a few more people to join in, but there is no time like the present, right, Douglas? So, um, okay, so here, here's, here's what's happening. Um, if you've read Left Behind, if you've watched Westworld, if you follow the folks at various economic forums around the world, if you're curious about interplanetary colonization or flight and are horrified or intrigued by fictions such as The Handmaiden's Tale, then this Twitter Spaces is for you. Thank you for joining us today for Medium and Conversation with Professor Douglas Rushkoff. He is a professor of media theory and digital economics at the City University of New York, Queens. Also, he's named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT. And of course, he writes on Medium and hosts the Team Human podcast. And on top of that, has written many, many award-winning books. I think I counted 20, but correct me if I'm wrong. 
Um, we are talking today about Douglas's wildly sought after thoughts and ideas. After all, very important people tend to fly him in for private lectures about how to avoid or embrace a dystopian future. We're also discussing his hot book that came out this week, Survival of the F- Richest, The Escape Fantasies of Tech Billionaires. He is the person everyone wants to talk to right now about human survival. Now, if that sounds like a little bit of science fiction and a little bit of conspiracy theory, no one could blame you. Except we're not really talking Illuminati. We're not talking hidden groups. We're talking right now. Um, Douglas's book, which started out as an essay on Medium, analyzes the mindset of the people who have already prepared for this extinction-level event and the people who are financing and building the tech and the apps and the armies that they think will carry them through. They do plan to leave the rest of us behind. So let's get into it. Hi, Douglas. Thanks for joining us. Happy Friday. Happy book launch week. Happy, happy book launch week. It's a crazy one. I did coast to coast AM the other night, so now I'm totally turned around. You know, the old Art Bell show, speaking of conspiracy theory, it was fun to think about all this that way, though. Because for me, the whole point of this, I mean, honestly, is to learn to laugh at these ideas and these people. You know, I wrote this book as a black comedy so that instead of kind of uh, uh, believing the apocalypse fantasies of the tech billionaires, we can kind of laugh at them and realize how they don't work and then get on with the good fun project of of avoiding that altogether right avoiding it altogether that's <laughs> that's something that no one talked about in your book it was except for you um yeah <laughs> so <laughs> which is fascinating so so i you know I, i'd like to start you know as all things do at the beginning um yeah. you wrote that you were invited to basically give a billionaire bunker lecture in the middle of the desert um, with people who seriously wanted your opinion about how they're going to make it work after the apocalypse. Um, Can you share a little bit more about this? Yeah. I mean, if I knew I was being invited to that, I would have been less reluctant to go. They, (laughs) they, what they invite, because that sounds like fun. Um, What they invited me for was, you know, the typical, you know, a bunch of rich people want you to come out. I mean, it basically an overpriced talk on, you know, the future of the digital economy or something like that, which again is, you know, totally not my area of expertise, right? I'm a media theorist. I think about things. I'm, if I'm an expert in anything, I'm an expert in the present. It's just that most uh, business people are so far behind that, that you know, that t- telling them about the present is their way of understanding the future, <laughs> or you can at least see some of the early signals of what's going on. So it, it, I, I thought I was being brought out for that. And, you know, and I'm in the green room waiting to do this talk, you know, and I, I always try to bring a good lefty kind of anarcho-syndicalist mindset to these folks, you know, try to help, you know, uh, chip away at their at their mental armor is my sort of at least the way I justify going and speaking to them. And, uh, you know, I'm getting my notes ready. And instead of making me up and bringing me out, they brought these five guys into the green room who start peppering me with all the typical kind of business speculative questions, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin, mm-hmm. VR or AR, then finally, you know, uh, uh, Alaska, New Zealand. And the whole rest <laughs> of the time, it was them kind of water testing their survival strategies. And the, the, 
the question that we ended up on for most of the hour was the the weird, almost walking dead like question of, you know, how do I maintain control of my security force after the event? Because oh they know their money is going to be worthless. They've hired all these Navy SEALs armed to the teeth to protect their compound from the like of you and me who don't have, you know, <laughs> you know whatever vertical farming hydroponic you know, cryptographic, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever right. they're going to have in their bunkers. Um, so, uh, and it was interesting because to me, that question is the whole question, you know, which is really what they've been asking all along. How do I detach from everybody else and kind of rule them from above? How do I get to go live in the Web3 metaverse? You know, how do I upload my mind? How do I justify uh, putting a bunch of Amazon doorbells in the front of my house and never talking to another human being again. <laughs> so, so, so they were there and then they don't want to be here or something like that. Um, you wrote this, you know, did you, when they were peppering you with these questions, did you take them seriously at first or was it, or, or did you already have an inkling? This is where we were going. You know, honestly, I mean, I don't know if I've admitted this to anyone. When they first asked me these questions, I thought I was being punked. You know, <laughs> I really thought there was this. I remember at the end of the first season of uh, what was Donald Trump's show, The Apprentice? You know, yeah. they, they're doing one of these meetings and then the walls fell down and you see that you're in front of a giant audience. I was like waiting for the walls around the room to fall down and there to be a few thousand people going, ah, ha, ha, you believe this it was really happening. Um but no, it was really happening. And and then I, I I was terrified because I figured, look at these. These are, you know, smarter, richer, whatever people than me. And they've determined that there's this huge probability of this thing happening. And this is what they're doing. Then I got sad thinking, you know, these are the most powerful, wealthiest people I've ever been in the same room with. And they feel utterly powerless and ineffectual, impotent to influence the future. If they feel impotent, my God. And then by the end, when they were asking me these questions about how to maintain control of their security guards, I started to think they were ridiculous, that they were <laughs> that they were jokes. They were not society's winners. They were really sad losers. And I ended up telling them, you know, the way to prevent your head of security from shooting you between the eyes when you're in the bunker is to pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today. And <laughs> they didn't even understand what I was trying to tell them. But basically, I was trying to say, look, you be nice to these people now and they won't kill you later. And maybe just maybe if you're nice to people rather than just trying to extract their money and data, you know, at any cost and externalize the damage to our our psychology and our environment and our geopolitical uh, uh, situation. Um, if you if you actually thought of the world not as a neighborhood to move out of, but as a neighborhood to take care of, then maybe just maybe you know you won't have to escape at all. You know, it's it's interesting you you talk about neighborhoods because it made me think about you know the you know kind of American city legacy of white flight mm -hmm. um, and uh, what's happening here. I know some people are talking about going to Mars and some are talking about going underground. Uh, you did interview some of the companies or, or did, they, I'm not sure how that worked. Did they contact you after your essay or you contacted them? Um, More contacted me. It was interesting. Uh, a, a bunch of these companies contacted me because, you know, here's five, you know, <laughs> <laughs> they just wanted the names of the billionaires to, to you know, to, to, 
get on there. Uh, these are good. What are they called? Uh, uh, verified leads or whatever it's called, you know, yes. qualified leads for uh, for sales. But, you know, most of them were just these are crazy companies, you know, trying to uh, uh, sell, you know, uh, a bunch of shipping containers that they're going to shove under the ground and outfit with heated swimming pools and jacuzzis. Like, where do you get the spare parts for a swimming pool after the apocalypse? You're like, this doesn't doesn't really it doesn't really work but one of them i kind of liked i mean he was a, a true maga right-wing guy he used to run a, a, a an embassy or a, in like latvia or something or the chamber of commerce or whatever and mm-hmm. he had an idea to do these kind of very sustainable old school farms where you've got you know roosters and chicken and biodiesel and and what he wanted was the billionaires would pay him like five or ten million dollars to guarantee a space in the farm But then it's also a business that's supposed to be teaching uh, other people around the country how to create these farms themselves, because his logic was, you know, he wants it to be guarded. And I said, so what do you do if, um, you know, a motorcycle gang comes with a ton of, you know, machine guns like in in Walking Dead? It's always these gangs. (laughs) And he said, I'm less scared. I'm less concerned about the motorcycle gang than the woman at the end of the driveway holding a baby starving. And I was like, wow, you know, and and just that he's even thinking that far ahead. So what he wanted was to invest in education for other people so that there are fewer people at the gates because he understands the sustainability of his sustainable farm is going to be dependent on, uh, you know, uh, some of the rest of the world being able to take care of themselves, too. And as a result, he's been unable to get any, any of these billionaires interested in his project. They're like, oh, there's a there's a weakness. There's a there's a, <laughs> a fault in your plan and that you're trying to help other people. You know, and that's that's the thing. It's the people that makes the systems work. So I thought it was kind of typically uh, I know that AI and machine learning and things like that come into play here. And, I, you know, and I wanted to talk to you about that. There was a part of your book where you talked about how some billionaires are using their money to do to research and to find better ways to optimize age old farming practices um, as a way to kind of cancel out the middleman but like you said with your example about the pool who does this work is are these billionaires really going to be like farming underground and cleaning their own pools and adjusting the shock is that a thing well, that's the interesting thing i mean i think that they've bought into one of silicon valley's great lies which is that all of these robots and automation replace labor you know, like you could go on 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 Amazon and they'll like make a T-shirt just made for you by computer and robots and, you know, no human hands. Uh, that's not really true. It's like all the robots are really doing is camouflaging another level of labor. There's still humans picking the cotton and digging the rare earth metals out of the ground for the robots. And, you know, your your 3D printer may print the object but where did the plastic goop come from where did the components come from where does the printer go when you throw it out and get another one you know so it's like where do we draw the the boundaries around the so-called computerized labor you know that's what i started to call it the dumbwaiter effect you know that i remember being taught i remember in middle school they showed us the dumbwaiter and said wasn't this great you know thomas jefferson really cared about his enslaved people so he made this sort of little pulley thing so you know they could just put the food in there and then you'd pull a little pulley and then it would just, you know, automatically appear up where the diners are eating on the second floor. And it's like, 
that wasn't put there to save the enslaved people the labor of walking up the stairs. They were already walking a mile in underground tunnels to bring the food and everything else down there. It's, it's to spare the guests the horror of seeing the enslaved person. So the technologies that we use very often are really just here to help insulate us from the human impact of what we're doing. Okay. See, that's the interesting part about this through line of your book. And I'm going to reset the room. Hello, everyone who has just joined us for this very special medium and conversation. We are talking with Douglas Rushkoff, the author of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And we were just going over uh, how he came to the idea of this story and then moving into AI and robots and all that good stuff. Thanks for joining us. If any of you all have any questions... Feel free to uh, add Medium, and near the end of our chat, we're going to get to some questions from Medium members, and of course, from anybody else who has joined the chat. Okay, so Douglas, uh, here, here, here is my next question about um, about individualism. Yeah, uh, you talked a lot about individualism, about colonialism, and about the mindset. And, and for everybody listening, you know, in the book, he calls the mindset it's got a capital m a capital m mindset and um it was a through line of the book this take build build better sell burn move take build better sell burn move it was like okay um can you can you talk about the capital m mindset yeah, I mean, the mindset is sort of this yeah, embracing concept, and it certainly started a long time ago. I mean, you could say mm -hmm. that Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar, who Mark Zuckerberg loves, you know, they all had the mindset, you know, exactly, take, dominate. You know, it's, it goes all the way back to, you know, Francis Bacon saying, you know, empirical science will allow us to take nature by the forelock, hold her down and submit her to our will. You know, it, mm -hmm. there, it's that. But these days, what I look at the mindset is kind of this tech billionaire belief that with enough money and technology, they can escape the catastrophes they're creating by using money and technology in that way, right? It's this idea that you could somehow build a car that can go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. And the, the, the things, the kind of the tributaries to this mindset is this, this belief that humanity is a problem to be solved with technology. And that's sort of the, the, the dangerous thing. They, they think of themselves as, well, they take Stuart Brand at his word, as gods. You know, we are as gods and may as well start acting like it. We are one level above mere mortals. It's what Peter Thiel really means when he says go from zero to one, that you should exist one order of magnitude, 10x above everybody else. It's what Zuckerberg means when Facebook mm. starts failing and he's like, oh no, we're going to go meta, right? So wave hands, crypto VR, blockchain, something meta above. It's web three, not web two. It's game B versus game A. And mm. it, it's, it's this understanding that, you know, it's, it's almost a Richard Dawkins-like um, uh, staunch atheistic belief that humans are just at the mercy of selfish genes. And, and it's guys like Jeffrey Epstein who will look to a Dawkins or a technologist for any evidence that whatever he does doesn't matter. There's no soul. This is just flesh. This is just flesh with genes. May as well be my genes in that flesh and mm. keep going. And it leads to such such a kind of a, 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 
a brittleness. You know, it's 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 why they have this insulation equation because they really just want to be able to to uh, to live by the biases of digital code. You know, and and understand human relationships purely as market phenomenon. Women and nature and black people and indigenous people are all this scary, unpredictable stuff that we can just reduce somehow with our own IP you know, and, and, and achieve sovereignty over them and ultimately sovereignty over the self, which is the strangest part. I mean, self-sovereignty in a way is the pinnacle of the mindset, self-sovereignty. So you're not just, you don't just objectify nature women and everyone else you objectify yourself and become king of that dude you king of you i mean that's what it sounds like with you know trying to save your body parts and upload your brain into the um into something you said going meta you know i guess i don't know web four web five um and this is how the tech plays into it um because you know the title being escape fantasies of the tech billionaires um but when we talked about who's right. doing this work, so so how do we, you know, for those of us who don't yet have the escape hatch, I am one of them. Uh oh, um, you're a little late. I just, I'm a little late. I just I just haven't been able to find all of the medals I need right. to make it. Um, how what are we to do? I mean, is it how? What are what are, what are the rest of us to do? Uh, is does the Earth have a shot at making it better? so that nobody has to leave. Oh, yeah. You know, believe it or not, uh, avoiding the requirement of catastrophe is still so much easier than trying to survive it. You know, Mm. it's like, and I understand like what you're talking about before with white flight. You know, my dad was raised in an awful, you know, neighborhood, tenement neighborhood in New York. And the pride of his life was making enough money, working hard enough so he could get out of that neighborhood and raise his family somewhere better. But what about when the whole earth is the neighborhood? Right. You can't right. leave. You got to go. OK, I better make I better make the neighborhood better. And that's way easier for us to do than them because we're still here in the real world we're not up in their eco farmed you know uh, software stack vertical farming preserve you know we're not committed to that we're not afraid of other people so it's really as easy as and i know it sounds like a dirty word these days but embracing a bit of degrowth of of slowing down a little bit, realizing that does every household on the block need a minimum viable product lawnmower from Home Depot? Or would we be better off buying one good lawnmower and then sharing it amongst these 10 or 15 houses? Oh, Ooh, I oh, know. Said share. That's blasphemy, though. That's the enemy. <laughs> then the obvious question is, like, well, what does the lawnmower company do? What about the jobs of the lawnmower people? What about the GDP? It's like, since when was the, the, were we put here to serve the economy? Right? The economy was here to serve us. So once we can flip it, we realize, oh, wow, you know, we've got the, the, the figure in the ground reversed, the cart and the horse. It's, it's gone opposite. Just as and and digital technology is the most obvious example of how we did that. We took these tools that were here for helping us express ourselves, our, our collective imagination in new ways, and we turned them on the people. Right? We, we don't have people using technology. We have technology looking for exploits in humans, and the people who do that get rich, 
And the people who do that, who do get rich, get correspondingly less empathetic. That's what our latest studies are showing, is that the wealthier you get, the less empathy you have for other people. It's as if, and this is what neuroscientists are saying, it's as if they've had brain trauma. The frontal lobes don't respond to pictures of other people in pain. So mm. that's not the direction we want to go. Not at all. Not at all. And this degrowth, this embrace of degrowth, um, how does that square with GDP? You know, I, you know, it we're supposed doesn't. To... But how does oh, okay. life square with GDP? What is GDP? <laughs> Why does GDP have to grow? GDP has to grow because some 12th century European monarchs were trying to stop the rise of the merchant class in the marketplace who were using peer-to-peer currencies. They outlawed them and came up with central currency so they could lend it to people to transact and then collect interest on it. The only reason the economy has to grow is to satisfy the underlying operating system of central currency, which was made to help 12th century people stay rich by being rich. They're dead. They've long since left the building. This economic system served colonialism. It was great for for conquistadors and anyone who was willing to enslave people and and, and steal their, their resources. It doesn't work in a civilization's middle age. It's not a sustainable approach, particularly when we're running digital companies that require now exponential hockey stick growth. You end up with perversions like Bitcoin, which is literally we are going to burn the planet in order to convert carbon into a digital symbol system. Right. We're we are delivering planet to a digital symbol. That's bizarre. It's like a version of of biblical sacrifice, you know, writ large, right? To a God that is a to a God that is a, a spreadsheet. A spreadsheet God. I, you know, and you you know, we talk about the God complex, the spreadsheet God. And you know, everyone who's who's just chiming in, we're talking about survival of the richest, the escape fantasies of the tech billionaires, and also talking to Douglas Rushkoff about not just this book, but also his many, many ideas. Um and his words and where they're coming from. Um, there's a whole chapter in the book about the about this this history of this kind of system that's led us to where we are uh, in the world right now with capitalism. I found it fascinating. Uh, you, you know, you you really broke down in a chapter what other people have taken many many books to <laughs> to say. And I you know I as a writer myself, I also really appreciated that. And you know, I want to back up a little bit to ask you about. Um, the literal writing of this. Um, I know you you penned the first essay. Well, you published the first essay anyway in 2018. Don't know when you wrote it, but since then you've written several books. Um, and you write on Medium, and you have your podcast, and 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 you're teaching students. Yeah. Um, how are you balancing this writing? Are you writing daily? I mean, how are you? How are you doing this? You know, honestly, right now, I'm not balancing it well. You know, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm squeezing a little bit too much product out of the person. But it's partly because I have a sense of, of urgency. You know, I have a daughter who's going to be going to college soon and going out into this world. And and I think of our world and so much of so many aspects of our civilization as salvageable. I really don't think it has to end. And there's so many intellectuals and friends of mine who've become, you know, it's a science fiction idea originally, but they become, you know, what's called accelerationists, 
that mm. they really think the whole thing is doomed. So we might as well pedal to the metal and let this system break down so we can restart, we can reboot, you know, control, alt, delete the whole thing, which is sort mm. of where, you know, Bannon, Thiel and Musk all sort of meet on, the, <laughs> on a certain, on a certain sim- self-similar spectrum of, you know, let's get to the next thing. Let's just get to game B already and, and let go of game A. This, and, and, and I'm not there. I, I have a much more incremental, gentle, loving um, theory of change. I don't think we need to sacrifice the well-being of the 8 billion people who are alive today for the trillions of people that will star seed the universe at some point in the future. I'm a presentist. I think if you're not doing it now in the moment, then uh, that ends justifies the means thing is probably not is probably not going to happen. But mm. but. I, I want to take a moment, though, to say the, the way this happens, though, was a kind of writing that is now going out of style as everyone runs to Substock in their independent whatevers. I wrote this piece for an editor at Medium, for a guy okay. named Aaron Gell, and I wrote it where it was a piece about this kind of tech billionaire mindset. And at the very end of the piece, I mentioned, and you know, and by the way, you know, I even went to talk to these guys, these billionaire dudes, and all they cared about was their apocalypse bunkers. <laughs> like an aside. And Edder, he calls me up on the phone and he goes, Doug, that's not, don't throw that away. That's your lead. I go, what do you mean it's my lead? I said, these are crazy guys. These are nothing to laugh about. He goes, that's the lead. So I put it up at the front and then the piece goes wild. And I realized, you know, we need other people. You got to work with other people when we, we mm. all think we know best. But boy, it really having a great editor. And if you don't have an editor, having real friends look at it. If it takes an extra day or two days to post it, <laughs> it's really right. okay. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna co-sign plus one hundred on on having somebody else read because it it helps. You know, it's yeah. it's it's writing one hundred and one. But you know, I know we're all super individual right now. You know, get your own. Um, Get yourself out there, branding, branding, branding. But uh, it's also nice to share, to work with people. How about yeah. that? So um, we, I wanted to ask a question that was submitted by one of our uh, Medium members. Okay, so this question is from uh, Tessa Schlesinger. Okay, so... She says, how do the super rich see the apocalypse that is coming? And um, that today's she's I'm I'm summarizing this. She's uh, assuming that today's conditions could easily lead to another French Revolution. Um, So she wants to know, what do they think is happening? Uh, uh, Is it a apocalypse of a religious nature or is, is it more of like an extinction level event brought about? you know, by humans. Well, in some ways, it's it's uh, all of the above. You know, okay. they, they, they're, as I see it, they're addicted to a narrative. You know, the sort of okay. Aristotelian narrative, beginning, middle, end. You know, and any Marvel blockbuster, where's it going to go? It needs an end game, right? These guys have started businesses that are never about what the businesses do. These are businesses that are all about what? Their exit strategy. So if mm. you're living in a world, right, that's dominated by businesses and you're living on a landscape of businesses dedicated to exit strategies, where are you going to go with that? You're going to then need a meta exit strategy for the whole thing. You know? mm. And the real thing that these guys are more scared of, even more scared of than they are 
of us is uh, is AI. You know, I was at a, uh, I was at one of these retreats of you know you know the good tech bros. You know, the ones who come right. back from Burning Man and care about the world and all that. Uh, you know, the the ones who who, who saw the error of their ways and now want to lead <laughs> lead right, humanity. Right. Shout out Burning Man. I'm, I'm sure they're still driving home, but shout oh, out, shout out. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Figure out how they could turn their social media company into something good that still you know gets a hundred extra turn. But the, the, this guy was saying to me, says, God, you know, I've been looking at your tweets and medium pieces, and you're you know you're saying a lot of really negative stuff about AI. Are, are you really comfortable with that? And I'm like. Comfortable? What do you mean? Because well, when the AIs take over, they're going to see what you posted. He goes, "I don't post anything about AI because I don't want them to know how I feel." And I'm like, mm. "Yeah, but don't you think if AIs are smart enough, they could look at your posting pattern and the things that you're not saying and be able to infer using machine learning how you actually feel?" And he mm. looked, at me, his jaw dropped, like like I I you know like he was going to throw up or something. As it, and so these kids. And they are kids. They're, the, these tech bro children are plucked from college in the freshman year because they had a good idea. Before they took history, economics, the philosophy, before the, the, the myelin sheaths have grown around the frontal lobes <laughs> in their brains, they're young and they transfer parental authority onto a deal or a VC. And this is where they end up, like smarter than us, but like, like children, like teenagers. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's interesting that all this coincides with the very change of structure of some public education systems and some private ones, you know, so it's all it's it's a, this is a this is a um, super heavy topic. But at the same time, it's also kind of light because some of it is pretty incredible. I have to be honest with you. But so so is the flooding in Pakistan. So right. um, there are some very real things happening that that we definitely you know need to deal with. Um, so I think that uh, you know we've, we've asked a couple of questions from our users, from our members. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, the next step we're we're going to end on this final question: um, How can we be responsible tech users and responsible tech makers? What's best practice here? I mean, it's almost uh, it's almost the same thing. You know, a lot of it's what I wrote about way back in uh, 2011 in a book called Programmer Be Programmed. Mm-hmm. You know, you've really got to look and, and ask yourself a few questions. Am I using this technology or is the technology using me? I mean, I remember in the late 80s when we hacked into a shopping mall, the kid the hacker kid called it that he found an exploit. That's what we used to call it. We found an exploit in that machine so that we could get in there. And now when I talk to tech developers, they talk about finding exploits in humans, right? That we're going to create an algorithm that finds an exploit that that basically uses one behavioral economics uh, phenomenon or another against people. So I would say most simply make technologies for people to use rather than technologies that use people. If you're in a meeting in your company and the language sounds like, how do we get people to do this? How do we get people to do that? Then you're using tech on the people, you know, rather than how do we allow people to do this? How do we empower people to do that if they want to is a very, very different approach. And I think you have to look at that when you're dealing with the technology. Is the technology connecting me to other people or alienating me from other people? Is the technology mm. taking time and energy from me or is it actually giving me something, something that, that I want, you know, th- that I want to do? 
And it's really, it's, it's basically that. And then finally, put the borders of the technology all the way back and all the way forward. Where did it come from? What children were sent into mines to get the rare earth metals to make these things? Where's the labor? Where's the, where are the externalities? Because our Macs, our, our iPhones are really good with their little Bauhaus elegance and making themselves look like closed systems, but they're not. They come from somewhere and they go somewhere. They impact people other than the ones you see. So think about that before you, you know, you click on something. Mm. Well, as they say, that is definitely a word. Um, we, <laughs> well, that is a word. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. It's always a pleasure talking with you because I learn so much and I get to laugh. Um, uh, well, I do. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. And honestly, th there are there are. This was such an opportunity. I mean, I wrote a piece, work with somebody. I get a I got a book and a movies. What you say they're gonna make? I mean, we'll see. I get to do things like this. It's like. Um, it can happen for you. Um, but, <laughs> but what I mean is we, we do, there are truly great things about the internet. I am not anti-tech. I hope no one thinks I sound oh. anti-tech. I am pro-tech. This stuff is remarkable. It's just the people making and profiting off it, you know, are doing so at, at the expense of, of people and places. And we, we can do this way, way better. Right. It sounds like the through line here is is a little bit of, you know, to borrow a term, uh, you know, collective work and responsibility um, there you go. might work out. Um, thank you for speaking with us. Douglas Rushkoff, editor and and editor, woo, editor, writer of Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires and a writer on Medium. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, I will see you on the social. Well, that was a lot to pack into half an hour. I hope you liked it. It was the kind of online book party that Medium threw for Survival of the Richest, which you can get or read or steal or borrow. Uh, and I'll see you in a couple of days on the next regular Team Human episode. Take care. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 